Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Joe, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Owen, thank you for having me. It's great to be here yet again. Yet again. For those that don't know, Joe was actually the inspiration for the Australian Investors Podcast series. He um, he was the one that said, hey, this, this podcast thing in the US is really taking off. You should probably try something like that in Australia. And um, lo and behold, here we are five years later. Um, so... Joe is definitely, I, I have a lot of praise for the, the Joe's forward thinking and how he goes about investing and thinking about brand and building things. And it must be said, mate, you're incredibly entrepreneurial yourself. You've, you know, effectively uh, built two businesses, like in conjunction with The Motley Fool and Donnie Buchanan at Lakehouse, and now uh, with Seaplane. Uh, but today, hopefully, we're going to bridge the divide between your, like your move from not just across the ocean, but also from pr- public markets to private markets. We're going to talk about Seaplane and the business, and I guess just have an exploration of this world of venture capital through your eyes. Um, but to begin with, mate, I know you're in uh, Texas, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us who does better barbecue? Oh, well, is in like the US versus Australia? Yeah. Or, oh, well, look, I love Australia. There are a lot, Australia has a lot of great things going for it. And I think the, I think the beef in Australia is outstanding. I was ranting to a buddy about that the other day, actually, and I, I missed the steak uh, in Sydney, but the barbecue and in Texas is pretty elite, particularly mm. in Austin. It, it was a selling point on moving to Austin. <laughs> yeah, it went barbecue and then the other things uh, in, in the filter, I'm sure. But mate, uh, and the reason I bring that up is I always ask you, I went back and listened to our previous interviews that we've done and um, I have very high conviction in your um, in your recommendations when it comes to food and beverage, in particular, one thing that you told me in the past or one place you told me in the past was Marlowe's. You mentioned um, Cabrito before that. And obviously, you introduced me to Patricia's in Melbourne in my own city. Um, so, I had to ask the food. You're giving me a lot of credit for some good calls here. Oh, that's on, really good. Yeah. on this episode. I, yeah, I appreciate <laughs> it. And by the way, 
you know, earlier what you're saying about the, the podcast suggestion, that that's cool. And I'm glad it was helpful, but you're the one who, uh, you know, you've been working hard at it five years, built a huge audience. And it's been a lot of fun for me to see your success and the following you've built. And I'm very happy for you. So, oh, no. Well, so. thanks, mate. I uh, I do appreciate it. But um, no, I credit where it's due. But mate, let's talk a little bit about the transition that you made, obviously going across the ocean, but also uh, from public to private. I'm curious, and a lot of people that listen to this would be curious why you went to private markets. Obviously, there are some appealing features, but given how impressive your track record was, both with the Motley Fool and then Lake House, um, why you decided to apply your craft to private markets? Sure. Well, I'm going to presuppose here that most people aren't familiar with me. I'm not not arrogant enough to think that. So um, I guess to go back in time, I was fortunate to get into investing at a very early age, years before I could drive, and just became an investing wonk and super passionate about businesses, business models, and the concepts behind them. And that just was something that I got steeped in very early and, and had run with ever since. So over the course of my career, though, I would say I have gone earlier and earlier stage, and I've looked further and further afield from where I started my career. So started my career in public markets, heavily mid-large cap US. And I think you can do very well with that. Um, you know, like sometimes there are great investment opportunities staring you right in the face people are familiar with. So I've owned Amazon and Visa, for example, for more than a decade. Uh, mm. without ever selling shares either. So it's not that I don't think you can do well in public markets, of course. But I will say that over, again, arc of my career, I went smaller and smaller, more towards growth, and trying to find opportunities where other investors weren't looking and where there was potential for major breakout returns. The other thing I'd say is that when I stepped back from Lake House and I had the opportunity to just kind of work with a blank sheet of paper on what I wanted to do next, and I thought about what do I enjoy and where do I think I can, frankly, generate the best performance or at least have the best potential for it, I kept coming back to early stage venture. And the reason is, you know, the most fun I had at, at Lake House was when we were very early on our investments. So super high growth, early companies that... You know, there are companies that list on the ASX that if they were in the US, they'd be venture backed rather than listing. Reason mm -hmm. being the amount of venture funding in America is something like 48x what it is in Australia. So there's just a, a bigger venture ecosystem there, which allows investors in Australia to get almost like public venture in a way that you can't in America. So <clears throat> I think just being early is a big component of that. And I guess to speak a little more to that in specific terms, and I guess to talk about the way public and private has shifted, you know, in the US, Amazon listed back in 97 at a market cap of around 400 million. When Airbnb listed a couple, a couple of years ago, that was at around a $40 billion valuation. So if you wanted to capture most of the super return with Airbnb, that was not done after it listed. That was done while it was private and mm. preferably early. So the fact that companies are staying private much longer was a factor for me. 
Another was just raw upside and potential. So if you look at a number of different studies across early stage investing, and there are a lot of different ways to look at this, but you take eight different studies that done on angel investing, for example, the average return across those studies shakes out to about a 27% annualized return over many different years, mm -hmm. many different studies, and compare that to a long-term average return of around 10% in public markets and share market over very, very long-term. Now, you know you don't get liquidity with angel investing like you do with public markets, and you have to do the work and it's frankly much harder to find early stage private opportunities than it is to just go out and buy something that's listed on an exchange. But that gap, you know, it's it's pretty steep. I mean, if you're averaging 27%, you double your money in three years versus seven years at a 10% rate, right? And I just I say that because that's just an average over many studies for a lot of time. Everyone's results vary widely because it's a parallel driven industry. But I think when you kind of bring it all back, for me, it was just a combination of, well, I think great companies are staying private for longer, and I want to be part of them. I think performance potential is highest when you're really early. Uh, I enjoy being early as far as engaging with founders and you know, workshopping ideas. And the other thing is competition. So I'm always looking for, you know, let's just say choosing the right game. And I'll just kind of give you some stats to help frame this. So in the U.S., there are something like 19,000 U.S. Um, mutual and hedge funds compared to about 3,000 venture funds. So you have a lot more people to compete with on the public market side. But the number of opportunities on the venture side is actually much, much larger there are around three times as many deals that are done in a year in venture as there are number of listed stocks in the US. So you've got far less competition, far more opportunities. And you kind of stack all those things together. And for me, it was like, well, this seems like a great way to spend the next 25 years or so. So that's <laughs> just what I uh, threw myself into when I got back. Do you think that? Like we, we spoke a few weeks ago, and this is touching on this idea of deals and companies staying private for longer. Do you think if we move into an environment where the cost of capital is higher, that companies may seek IPOs sooner? It's possible, but I think that structurally, the amount of time it will be for companies to list is longer in a structural sense than what it has been in the past. And I think there was a cyclical boost there just because of the amount of late stage capital that came into venture from public market strategies that kind of dipped into doing late stage private, partly for returns, partly for marketing. Um, and a lot of those investors have receded. So, you know, for anyone who is listening, who is not a complete uh, nerd for venture data, which I'm assuming is most people, you know, the, the venture market has massively corrected and it didn't happen straight away. There is a serious lag with private markets relative to public, but over the last year to kind of frame it in a, in a few different ways. One is that the amount of deal value. So the value of deals that were done investments 
at the seed stage, which is my sweet spot, that was down 44% year on year. It's more as you go into later stage. Um, the amount of capital invested into venture funds was down 73% year on year in Q1. I mean, that is, you know, that is an enormous drop. I mean, it, it's hard for a year on year change to be worse than that. So it just shows you how hard investors have hit the brakes, uh, both at the, the allocator level, but at the GP slash VC level as well. So I do think that, I mean, the IPO window is definitely shut for a while. I, I don't know, what happen, but I do think that companies moving past this, this cycle we've been in, and kind of back to your point, I think there'll probably be a little more of an emphasis around unit economics, for example, which sounds really basic and blocking and tackling stuff. But there were a lot of companies that were raising a lot of money with very uncertain core unit economics, um, not just that they're burning cash, but but at the transaction level, it wasn't clear that they were ever going to make money. And to be fair, there were some people in venture who were calling this out years ago. I mean, Bill Gurley at Benchmark probably being the, the lead voice and someone I have huge respect for. But you know, the, the market rolled forward with it and there was a lot of enthusiasm. But I think at this point, you know, investors have gotten a lot more disciplined about what they're willing to back. And I think founders are, you know, they hear it. They hear mm. it and they're adapting pretty hard to run tighter ships. Why, why did you choose to focus on early stage businesses? And maybe within that um, answer, Joe, maybe you can also talk about like the, to give people some context around what that actually means in terms of seed or pre-seed, how yeah, big sure. are these businesses? What do they look like when you confront them day to day? Sure. And, you know, a good question I've had from people is like, how is this similar to, or how does your skill set translate from public yeah, markets? Yeah, and so, yeah, like I'll frame it as the way I approached it was trying to take my skills as an analyst and you know business analyst over many years and going with the logic of what is the earliest that I can take my skill set and apply it and add value. So when I think of what my I consider my strengths as an investor are, I think I conceptualize business models really well. And I think I can crunch unit economics at the micro and, and the macro and think about the levers to them and how well they can scale. And I think those are things that I'm particularly good at. And so when I thought, how far do I want to go, how early, the logic was, and, and what I'm focused on doing is businesses where it's a startup that's got a live commercial product. So they've got something out the market, they're selling it. They've got a channel that's working for them. They're not, you know, they're not massive yet. They're not at a stage where you'd say they've got anything near a moat. I mean, you know, moats aren't walking through the door at pre-seed and seed stage. So the stages that I'm looking at to kind of clarify them, pre-seed is this realm where it's either you can have like early or late pre-seed to put a bunch of labels. Early is there's an idea, um, there's some funding, there's not a live product. Then there's there's a live product, but it's very, very light. Then you kind of move into seed, which is a little more mature. The product might have you know, a few hundred thousand in revenue, for example, annualized terms. 
and that you can move that up and down a scale. It, you know, there's a lot of variability here. I try not to dwell too much on the name of stages, but for me, the sweet spot is again, you know, there's traction towards product market fit. So it's not obvious that there's product market fit. If there is, frankly, they're off talking to a later stage firm than the stage of that. But there's really good progress towards it. There's really good unit economics for the scale that they're at, appreciating that these unit economics are going to change over time. But having the background with public markets, being able to understand what that evolution looks like from the beginning of the movie to having seen the ending of movies, you know, and what that progression is. Um, yeah. And that's what, kind of how I. So, so in terms of like early pre-seed, would we be talking about businesses pre like revenue as well in that bucket or. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's not, that's not my zone, but there are people who that who is their that. zone. Yeah. Yeah. And, so- and you know, I, I personally, I'm like, look, I have no edge with trying to predict whether a given founder is going to be remarkably more successful than another. And Mm -hmm. I could look at common heuristics that others do, like, has this person, you know, are they a multi-time founder? Do they have industry experience? Now, I will say, academic research shows that founders with industry experience tend to have better outcomes for investors than those who don't, which probably is not a shocking Mm -hmm. um, data point. But at the same time, you know, everybody looks at those same things. So there's no uniqueness to that. But for me, and part of the reason that I focus on traction and product and to kind of get back to, you know, looking at unit economics and another thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is ROI for customers and thinking about product and, you know, are the people buying this product getting a really attractive return on it? And if so, they're likely to be very sticky customers. They're likely to be net promoters. There's probably pricing power there, ability to cross and upsell. Um, But big picture, if there's huge value add for customers in a very large and growing market, and the the founder or founders have proven that they can sell the product at least early uh, and find an audience in a channel, then that's something that excites me. And that's how I'm entering and what I'm looking for. Yeah, because that's something that we talked about last time, which was this idea of like extreme customer loyalty and how loyalty goes beyond just like recurring revenue figures or ARR or however you wanted to frame it. It goes beyond that because if people, if it's mission critical, people love it. it the, the, the expansion is something that people probably underestimate. So you're, as you've mentioned before, you're looking not just how this is incepted, but the end game as well, and how that the business could traverse that across that chasm and, and reach that point. Um, I had a question for you, which because you and I obviously speak a, a bit, um, and not all of it's recorded, thankfully, um, but uh, you and I speak a bit. And I think last time you effectively mentioned that there's a difference between like private, just standard private equity and venture. And you had a f- phrase, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was along the lines of, I quizzed you and I said, well, hey, Joe, I'm thinking of looking at private companies and small private businesses rather than being in venture. Something that really interests me personally is moving into businesses where they may be traditional style businesses. Um, And I think you referenced something like the IRR and you basically said, well, I could get the risk, you know, 
risk-adjusted rate from public markets, but I really need to compound faster than that if I'm going to be taking the risk. So I'm curious how you think about the risk reward in this in this case. And I can't for the life of me, this is a terrible question, but I can't remember how you framed it. But you basically had some feedback for me saying that, well, when you look at venture top style companies. Um, there is like almost like an implied IRR that you need to meet, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I don't remember that exact question from our conversation either. But what I can say is, you know, if you're thinking about venture, um, expected returns are pretty high. So investors are taking a lot of risk because the proportion of venture investments that don't work out is pretty high. Uh, if you look at angel investing historically, something like 52% of angel investments have returned. There, there's a Kaufman study on this huge study, returned less than 1x and on average a loss of 80%. So, mm. you know, that's pretty material. So when you're wrong, you need your winners to, to really offset. Now, the joy of that is when you're right, the magnitude can be absolutely enormous. Um, but, you know, I'll... I'm going to go on a little tangent, but you told me you told me beforehand that we could do tangents on this one. I'm going to go on a little tangent. Highly encouraged. Okay, so something else that I think um, in the favor of venture that I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate is while that 52% number is high, if you look at public market data, I think people can forget sometimes just how much of a Powerball there is in public markets as well. You know, venture is known as Powerball, but but public markets are too. And there was this massive study done by, I believe it was JP Morgan, where 44% of stocks that they studied over a multi-decade time horizon had fallen by more than 70% from their all-time high and never recovered. So when I eyeballed that, I'm like, oh, it's not massively worse than angel investing. But the returns when you're right on angel investing are massively superior. Now, again, you have to do more work uh, as far as finding private deals and getting into the deal and supporting founders than you do if you're just a passive owner in a company that's listed. And there's liquidity, which is the other big part where when you make you know, private early investments, can't go out and sell it the next day. You decide uh, you made a mistake. You're, you're, you're in it to win it. And you're there and you for the founder. And even if you're not thrilled with how it's going, you know, it's still expected that you're going to get in, roll up your sleeves and do what you can to help, you know, the business succeed. Um, to get back to your question, um, you know, I think with venture, there are very high expected returns, both because of the risk, but also because of the potential. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, to private bucket, private investments, you've got venture, you've got Private equity, which I would consider more like as an asset class, is namely buyouts. And then you've got the super majority of private companies, which are what venture people would typically call lifestyle companies, which I think is kind of condescending. Um, but these are just privately held companies um, that, you know, come in all ways, shapes, forms. Um, you and I both both own one, so they're out there, and they can, um, but you know only a small percentage of private companies are something that VCs are looking to back, and that's because VCs are looking to back businesses that 
not only have you know ideally good unit economics, strong founders, but are in very large markets and have huge, massive breakout potential. Um, but the thing is, people don't need to invest. You know, this is me kind of bigging up lifestyle businesses, but there are plenty of awesome private businesses that aren't traditionally you know, venture backed or fit a venture model. So I think there are a lot of different ways that investors can do very well across all markets, but particularly within private markets. Yeah, because one of my, like we have a lot of people that follow the show, Joe, many business owners, obviously, but then we also have a lot of people like myself that are exploring uh, private markets in earnest. And um, I think Oh, I'm, I, I follow a guy from the US called Brent Bishaw and I follow him quite closely and what the team that he's got around him are doing. And one of the earliest uh, interviews that he did, I think it was the first ever podcast interview he did with Patrick O'Shaughnessy was talking about this idea of effectively buying some companies at a free cash flow yield of 25% or so, um, and then hopefully expanding that as as they go along. And a lot of people hear that and they think that sounds incredible. And then obviously you have to back out the amount of work that goes into that. And I'm curious how you think about, so you get a lot of deal flow, like you personally in the venture spectrum, you get a lot of deal flow, if I'm not mistaken, like inbound, like people find you on Twitter, they know what you're doing. Uh, and occasionally- yes, It's a fire hose. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I'm curious, like say, because there's- Thousands, just here in Australia alone, right? There's something like 55,000 private companies that have revenue. I think it, the figure's over 10 million. It could be over 5 million. And then you contrast that with public markets here in Australia, where there's 2,300 or so. Um, and in the US, much, much bigger again. And so the opportunity set for traditional private equity companies, whether they're smaller businesses, seems vast. And in venture, it also seems vast, but probably not as much. I'm curious how do you think about, I guess, the, the how you would contrast the differences between those two approaches, if you if you were like, you got the venture side, then there's like the more lifestyle, but also slightly more traditional industrialized businesses. Sure. Um, well, I'll speak to venture first. So venture-backed companies where you've got startups they're typically growing very quickly and i and i what i mean by that is like more than doubling year on year mm -hmm. sometimes a lot more than that they're in a high growth market they're typically doing something new and fresh it may not necessarily be you know an enormously disruptive idea but it's something that there's pull from the market people are excited about and it's new it's different um Maybe it's a better mousetrap, a more efficient mousetrap, a more effective mousetrap. Um, you are probably losing money on that path. You're burning cash, but you're doing it because the business has a very large opportunity ahead of it. And if it succeeds, then it should tip into profitability and have pretty good profits at scale. Now that'll vary widely by the industry. And I'll say, you know, my focus areas as an investor, I'm focused on network-driven models and recurring revenue-driven models. And where that tends to lead me towards is I look at a lot of marketplaces and I look at a lot of SaaS. And I do other things too. I look at other industries, but that's kind of where I look. I don't tend to look at life sciences, consumer, um, you know, which are some very big buckets. I don't do energy. Uh, there's a very large 
focus on. Other people do those well, and that's great. Um, but from a venture perspective, you know, it's these companies that are making radical amounts of change and they're growing super quickly. If you want to go more towards private equity, um, you're typically talking about businesses that are stable. They're growing, but not spectacularly. There's some defensibility around the business. There's probably some localized moat to the business. Whereas in venture, there's no moat, but you're investing with the potential that there will be. And if there is, it'll be extremely valuable. Um, some private equity deals are huge, and some of them are very small, like what they do at Permanent Equity. Um, I know Brent, know the team there. Tim Hansen, CIO, we're very good buddies. We go back a long way, former fool. Um, mm -hmm. And what they're focused on, you know, a traditional private equity model, you essentially trying to buy, to not be too diplomatic about it, but like a, an undermanaged business where mm -hmm. there's costs or sales channels, costs that could be wrung out, sales channels that haven't been explored, prices that haven't been raised, um, M&A deals that could be bolted on. You go in, you do that, you fund the acquisition through a lot of debt. Um, and then you try and sell it three years later and probably to another private equity firm who thinks they can do the same thing. Uh, what I'd say with permanent equity is, you know, and not to speak for them, but their model, they don't use leverage and in the name it's permanent equity. So they're looking to own for decades. Again, I don't want to speak for them or for the strategy, mm -hmm. but it's super long-term oriented and rather going in and ripping out costs. Um, they're instead trying to take, maybe it's a little Berkshire-esque where they're trying to buy these businesses from sellers who, for whatever reason, want to get liquidity, but they care about the business and it's a good one. And they'd like to see it you know, in permanent hands rather than getting flipped every three, four years. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, I think the fact that Brent's been so successful prior to setting up the firm, at least as it's known today, his reputation, then, you know, they now have a good bit of outside capital, thanks to the strategy that he's done so well with in the team there. I think it just speaks to there are a lot of different ways that you can do well private. You know, the fact that they're they're approaching it in a much more long-term, you call it quality-focused, um, predictable way, rather than, you know, the traditional leverage buyout model. And then you've got venture... That's kind of the wacky cousin <laughs> the other side. Um, but yeah, there's a lot hmm. of room in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I only asked you that, and thanks for sharing that, because it does contrast to styles of private market investing that are very appealing to a lot of um, investors who look on typically from the outside. So the, I've got a, quite a few questions around how you actually go about finding businesses or how businesses find you and what happens once they do find you. There was a tweet recently and I can't remember who it came from, but effectively someone said like, if you're a founder looking for capital and you want conversations and I think you put your hand up in the Twitter thread and um, we caught up not long after that. And I think it was fair to say like there was a, a lot of inbound to you. So, Joe, when we have um, in public markets, say, uh, we have managers on the show and you've been through this process with me before, you know I'm going to ask you things like, uh, like, how do you filter businesses? What does your process look like? 
Um, how do you assess opportunities? How do they come to you? All that stuff, like the top of the funnel work. Whereas, say in venture, it's it's going to be quite different to that. You, I know you get inbound, you'll get referrals, you'll go outbound as well. So, can you talk through that process from like idea inception, idea gen through the the funnel and the initial steps? Sure. So with public markets, you have a relatively static pool of companies that you're picking from. You know, even if you're working with a global mandate, which I used to do, uh, it was a lot of fun. That is a very wide open mandate, but it's still not as wide open as what you have with venture. And it's still it's still relatively static. Whereas with pre-seed seed, kind of where I'm focused, there's just a constant flow of new startups that are coming to market and looking to raise. So because of that, there's just a you know a consistent drumbeat and which is fun, but it also means you need to kind of orchestrate and build your idea gen model around that so that you're in a position to both cover what's coming through, but do it efficiently and leave time to do deep work when you need to do deep work. So um I get ideas from all kinds of places. So, you know, some of it's referrals from like-minded investors, people in the ecosystem. A lot of it's direct inbound. Some of it's direct outbound um, from me to founders. A lot of it's from accelerators. So if anyone's not familiar with accelerators, uh, think like uh, Techstars or Y Combinator, a mentor of Techstars. But these are organizations that try to accelerate startups by giving them some additional capital, but also tons of great coaching, mentoring, and support. So big picture, there's there are more deals than I could ever look at. So I have to prioritize trying to, to look from places where I think I might find good fits, but also you know, ones that are tight to my focus and strategy. And then when I look at them, be efficient with Filtering and you know a hard thing with the filtering is the proportion of investments that we end up making is very small out of the number that we look at right. So there are a whole lot of no's, which is the least least fun part. Um, but it comes with the territory, and trying to quickly filter through those um, so that you can then get to a place where you can do deeper work, and you know without probably going too hard into that section of it. I'd just say managing the deal flow, it's a daily thing. Like I'm looking at deals every day. I'm engaging with founders every day, but leaving enough slack in the schedule where I can double down and have, have really long conversations when I need to. I can then go do deep research. I can go talk to industry experts, customers, You know, do the full, full deep deep dive and have fun with that and really commit myself to it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think getting quality deals in the top of the funnel is important in the first place, but I would argue that as important or more important really is the the selection process, you know, of how you're actually vetting ideas. Because if you've got fund A and fund B and fund A has marginally better deal flow than fund B, but each of you is only investing in one out of every 100, 200 deals you look at. And it's really not about which of you has marginally better deal flow. It's about who is better at the selection process and portfolio construction. 
So who is sizing those investments best? And then who is supporting their founders, you know, and, and helping them as best they can to, to drive their business forward. Sometimes in public markets, you can say things like, you know, we f- focus on quality. So we screen for companies based on ROIC or maybe this like, you know, drawdowns for volatility, whatever. Um, if, and I, I pose this as a hypothetical, I don't know if you have a very succinct answer to it or not, but I guess there's two questions I have about that initial interaction you have with the founder. So like the first interaction, uh, assuming it's inbound to you, would be, do most of them come prepared? Like, do most of them come with a slide deck? And if they do, what would be like, say, like the three slides that matter? Because some of them have, I'd imagine, slide decks that are 40 slides. And you think this could be summed up in a, you know, a bit more succinctly. So I'm curious, like, what is that initial thing that you flick to every time or something like this? Yeah, I'd say 95% of founders have it together and they okay. have a deck and that's just the standard currency um coin of the realm and venture um typical venture deck they all kind of have similar similar vibes to them there's the problem slide so what it is it we're trying to solve here um there's the tam slide so how big an opportunity could this be there's the team slide where you see the you know, nice pictures of the team, their backgrounds, any advisors they have. There's the traction slide where you can see the progress they've made to date. Um, there will then be something around like a financial forecast, which is always deep and up and to the right. I always gloss <laughs> completely over that. I focus on what's happened and what is happening. I don't focus a lot on the projections. They're always very optimistic. Um, yeah, those, those are your core that you'll see in every deck. Um, for me, I tend to cut to, you know, is this a business model I understand? Is there really solid traction thus far? And what really solid means can vary a lot by model. So it could be a network-driven model. Monetization is pretty early, but they've got really strong engagement with the community. It's growing quickly. Whereas if I'm looking at a SaaS business, um, let's call it like a, a mid-market SaaS business, I'd want to see that they've been able to, to get out there and sell, ideally, across a few different channels, convert trials effectively, um, retention rates are high, engagement's high, early customer feedback is you know really positive. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I speak on behalf of all founders when I say that Definitely the one that has the pro forma or the forward-looking estimates are the ones we're most excited about, uh, but potentially not always the one that's the most reliable, uh, even from the in- inside. Uh, I think like people have this perception uh, that haven't been in this situation where they think, well, surely you would know like roughly what you're going to earn in years two and three. And I think to myself, sure, I've got a vision, but uh, that's not, that doesn't have a dollar sign in front of it because I don't know. Um, and I think that's, that's like, that's par for the course, right? I- yeah. And to be, to be clear, I appreciate that budgeting and forecasting for a startup that's growing super quickly 
not only is hard enough as it is, but when you're not entirely sure how much capital you're going to raise on the terms, like mm. I get that's that's really difficult. You're throwing a dart from all the way across the room, you know, from the bathroom, like all the <laughs> way across the pub. Like it, it's pretty difficult, and I, I appreciate that. Mm. Um, so if you speak to a founder and I know we always talk about this idea of like unit economics around product, right? Um, if you speak to a founder and your question might be something like, do you have a handle on the unit economics, like retention rates? And they would, does that founder basically have to have a very strong grasp of like how this would scale? Uh, I guess not necessarily even do they have to, but do they tend to like, my question is more so do the obviously the best founders would combine that financial acumen with the product specific stuff but at that stage are they more focused on product and they need the support of someone like you and aligned uh, backers to say hey i've seen this this story before this is what we should be thinking about like do you see that as kind of like your opportunity as well if they don't have that yeah yes yes i do so Typically, a founder at the stage I'm looking at, you know, they're very product centric, and they usually be technical founders. They've got a background in creating the software that they're selling, or they've got a commercial background and understand the problem that they're trying to solve, and they work with technical people to breathe that solution to life, and they go out and sell it. So those are typically the skill sets that I see. You know, at the stage where I'm talking to these founders, they've got a handle on their unit economics and particularly the ones that are, you know, they're not first time founders or they've come from accelerators where, you know, they're people going through them are well coached and trained on, you know, understanding what unit economics look like. But I would say like the real, you know, finer points of it, that's the kind of thing where I think someone personally that I get very into, I think is, is a value add for me and value add is something all, you know, VCs try to bring and VCs have different focus areas where they try to engage with founders and support them, which um, let's, let's take a tangent with that. So looking like if we step back really far and look at the venture landscape on the one end of the spectrum, you have, what are very small specialized venture firms like Seaplane that have a very tight focus area. They specialize in that. And what they offer to founders is that specialty and a lot of focus and commitment because they're not distracted. They just have a small area and they do that one thing well. At the other end of the spectrum, you have very large, well-known multi-stage firms that will be at late stage. So they'll do kind of like pre-IPO investment. They'll do series A, which is more of like you found product market fit and you're scaling. And then they'll typically have seed, which is around where I'm at, although usually writing bigger checks and kind of doing larger, larger seed deals than what I'd be looking at. They will compete and offer founders on, look, we can fund your whole journey all the way to public markets. They typically will have a huge staff who will support founders on things like recruiting, um, corporate partnerships, sales, strategy. They have enormous departments all around supporting founders. Um, 
I think it's great that the ecosystem has, you know, these, these different spheres that offer different strengths and benefits. In the middle, you have funds that have grown out of being small and specialist. They've chased more AUM. They haven't either because of performance or time or strategy been able to reach the scale that the mega shops have. And so some of them, the ones that are generalists can feel a little bit kind of orphaned to me, to be honest, as far as where as I feel like the industry is going, where there's capital accruing at the very big end of town because the multi-stage firms that are very large, they have a clear value problem. On the other hand, the small specialist firms also have a clear value problem and they're differentiated in their own ways. Uh, I think the ones that are in the middle who aren't quite as clear uh, will struggle. The ones in the middle, by the way, that do have a clear focus strategy, you know, I think there's definitely a place for them, especially the ones who who have performed for a long time. I think mean, they have you know well-deserved seat at the table. But it's the ones who are a little rudderless around focus who I think might struggle. Um to get back to value add, yeah, for me, I think where I dive in is I'm like, look, I built some tools for you to work with on estimating your customer lifetime value. Let me help you figure out what that looks like. Let's dig into the data and really optimize this across channels. Let's talk about your customer acquisition costs on that point and really get specific about it and thoughtful so that as you're raising money and you're putting more capital to work, you can be more optimized with this. And this is the kind of stuff that, yeah, seasoned investors bring to the table and and help founders out with. But I will say, you know, the stage I'm at, founders, they can have all kinds of different needs. Like I've helped founders with press releases. Uh, I've helped them build like calculators for showing customers ROI. Um, you name it, really. It's just kind of roll up your, your sleeves and dive in and help out. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Um, I think that, yeah, I think there was a, a, a in your, um, in your pitch deck, like for seaplane, uh, there was a, there was a, a note that you had in there that pointed to, um, that when there's more active involvement, um, from venture capitalists, the, the overall return, I think I'll quote it says, uh, angels who interacted with founders a couple of times a month experienced an overall return multiple of 3.7x compared to only 1.3 for angels who engage only a couple of times per year, which is like, that's um, in terms of stacking. material. Yeah. In <laughs> terms of stacking, that's, that's yeah. really material. So I, I think to that point, one thing that I am, you know, uh, you know my background. You know, as an investor, I tend to be a high conviction investor. Mm. I think that a high conviction approach in venture is that much more valuable because you're not just making relatively passive investments in public companies that are professionally managed at a very big distance. Um, you're a material owner in these businesses with tight relationships with the founders, and they're relying on you to to provide value and be helpful as far as the number of investments and time spent you know there's pretty linear relationships here so a typical venture fund will have around 30 investments in the fund um my my cup of tea is half that there are some that will have 60 90 i mean they can get pretty extreme for me you know it sounds really basic and intuitive but the more investments you make, 
the less time you're able to spend with each individual founder. Um, so you kind of shift from being proactive on, hey, I found this person you should talk to, to thanks for sending me the monthly update, thumbs up, <laughs> let me know how I can be helpful. <laughs> you know, And I, I want to be playing offense with, with founders rather than playing defense. So that's part of it. But another is selectivity. You know, so it sounds fairly straightforward, but it's logical. If you double the number of investments in a strategy, realistically, that means you've either cut, you've cut the amount of time you're spending on doing DD and or you're being less selective on what's going in and or you've doubled the number of deals that you're looking at. But again, that cuts back to like, well, then you're probably not spending as much. Something's got to give. And then ultimately, in the end, you still have less time you can dedicate to supporting individual founders. So for me, you know, investing with conviction venture is very intuitive. It's, it's not, it's not in the industry. So, you know, I guess to kind of walk out a little, there are a number of white papers that people have written about optimal portfolio construction venture. And they're all based on Monte Carlo simulations. And for anyone who's not familiar with Monte Carlo simulations, take all these historical returns and you randomize the outputs. You do thousands of simulations of what these outputs look like. And they all kind of point to the same conclusion, which is that because venture is a power law driven industry where a small number of winners drive an outsized percentage of total return, that in order to maximize your strategy's expected return, you should diversify as widely as possible in order to improve your chances of catching a unicorn, essentially, and the biggest winners. They all kind of have that same conclusion, but they're all um, just stepping, stepping right in the face of like this really important aspect, which is that VCs, even big shops, you know, there are limits to resources and there are limits on time and there are, you know, thresholds of selectivity. And the more deals you make, again, you're, you're going to cut, something's got to give, you're going to be less selective, or you're going to spend less time on deals and you're going to spend less time working with founders. Some mix of these things is going to bend. And I, you know, personally, I don't like bending on that. Everybody's got different strategies, but, uh, you know, I think that's been... An interesting thing for me is just seeing the degree of conviction behind a lack, a lack of conviction and a, and a broad-based approach to portfolio construction within venture. I think um, as you were saying that, it just reminds me uh, to follow, follow the incentives, Joe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, when you get big, um, what incentives are there around that right as well? Um, I've got a few more questions more around your process, which is that like one of them in particular would be remiss of me not to ask, because I know you have so many followers here in Australia who learn so much from you in terms of this, like a more modern approach to value investing, I would say, and how you applied that in public markets. So I'm curious how you think about valuation. Like we talk about unit economics and these types of things, and I'm Maybe, maybe the way to frame this is when you make your investments in these businesses, do you anticipate any time frame around that in terms of profitability or do you have an expectation around those unit economics maturing and inflection points and so on? Like anything that you can give us around how you think and how 
how you rationalize the what you see now, that kind of current look at the business versus where it could be. And like, because like we talk a lot about small cap investing, right? But typically small caps already are on their pathway to break even if they're not already. And obviously the further we go down in, t- in terms of these markets, typically the looser the valuation approaches become typically. Um, yeah. so, so I'm curious how you think about that generally. And if you do have, I, I was trying to think about this as you were speaking before, like in anticipation of when these businesses might mature is maybe a way to frame it. I don't know. Sure. I mean, yeah, look, a DCF model is not very useful if you're looking at a business that started 12 months ago and is doing hundred grand in revenue, right? I mean, you, you might as well just throw it out. Um, or let me rephrase, you shouldn't even bother. Um, <laughs> with what I'm looking for, I'll come back to valuation, but you know, in the in the short term, it's situational, but I want to see situations where there's a startup that's got really good core unit economics. Whatever their core economic model is, is firing and makes sense at the transaction level. And when they scale that, they'll be able to leverage it across their overhead and deliver some pretty solid profits across the business. So that part, seeing attractive unit economics, that's something that I, I want to see straight away. That needs to already be there. Profitability itself, that can come, but there also needs to be some degree of management around burn rates. So in an environment like this one, you can only be burning so much cash because there's a lot of uncertainty. I hate people overuse the word uncertainty in markets, but I'm going to use it here around the availability for a next round. <laughs> so I think founders need to be really disciplined right now. Yes, we're hitting the gas, but we don't want to burn too much too fast, lest we frankly just run out of cash. So I think what a lot of founders are trying to do right now over and over what I hear and see is founders are trying to get to break even or near it sooner rather than later. Not necessarily to maintain staying at running at break even, but to demonstrate they can so that they can Mm. raise more capital, which if they're getting really attractive incremental returns on, they should do and, and go that much faster, especially in an environment where other people are pulling back. So if you're able to raise capital in an environment where it's very difficult to do so, and you've got really good unit economics and a you know a, a go-to-market channel that's firing, like you should be hitting the gas. And it's something I encourage founders to do. Um, to get back to valuation, when you're looking at something that's pre-seed, you know, you can't really again just work through any kind of traditional valuation metric, like multiples kind of go out the window, DCFs go out the window. Where I'm trying to focus around is, well, the the framework has a few different aspects, but as far as valuation itself, I'm thinking about, okay, what's the business model here? What's the revenue model? What is the market structure? How is the market evolving? What do I think this business could participate in the market within reason over time, within a range of scenarios, right? Including super blue sky ones, because the whole point of investing in venture is upside capture. And one thing I'll say 
is there's this there's this balance of if you're always investing in the cheapest air quote cheapest venture deals they cross your desk they're probably not good ones they're probably ones where the business does not have traction or it's mm-hmm. in a tiny market or the deal has a lot of hair on it and while there are virtues in value investing i think if you try to invo- apply like a deep value framework to the kinds of businesses I'm looking at, you're going to end up with a lot of donuts and it's it's going to be a frustrating experience. On the other hand, I think in 20, late 2020, 2021, investors got way too far out on the other end of the spectrum. And there was this kind of like run towards the fire. A higher valuation is a good thing because it allowed them to raise more capital. And it means the business is truly got escape velocity. You know, and there are arguments like, well, if there is a huge breakout winner in venture, a startup like that, it's almost hard to overvalue. So if something is going to turn out to be worth a billion dollars, do you care if you paid at a valuation of 10 or 20 million? Not really. Like you're going to end up with a huge return either way. But while that's true of the winners, and it's true kind of at the micro, that's only a small percentage of deals. And I think if you, you know, systematically are very loose with valuation, you can end up, you know, overpaying and, and setting yourself up for heartache. And I'll kind of give you some examples, certainly without, you know, naming names, but I've talked to some founders recently who raised during, you know, the throes of the bull market and things were hot and heavy and valuations are very high. And now some of those founders are coming back to raise more capital and they're looking for similar prices or up rounds from where they were. And I've kind of had to have some unfortunate conversations where I'm like, look, I really like what you're doing for, you know, tick, 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 list these different things that I like, but when I look at a public comp for what you're doing, it's selling on two times forward revenue. Or, you know, maybe if it's a high quality SaaS business, it's selling on six, seven times. But, you know, some of these businesses, when you look at the, you know, kind of multiples they might be selling on for where they are, now granted it's still very early, but the ones that are a touch more mature, it's it's really hard to justify some of the valuations and i looked at one recently where i felt like if the business something like 90x revenue that we would only be looking at something like a 7x return wow and you know i'm like well i feel like we should do better than the 7x if if they manage to 90x sales um but that just that says a lot more about where valuations were, I think, a year ago than they are now. Valuations have softened. I think valuations have softened more than a lot of the headline data suggests too. So partly I saw some data today from PitchBook, but fewer companies are reporting valuation data. So that's one thing. And why would you report it? You'd report it if it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of the the data that's not as flattering is not getting reported. Another thing is that because the old values or the the dollar amount of deals that the done's been cut in half, roughly speaking, they're just not quite as half as many deals being done, but close. 
So what was a, you know, what is a median deal done today was a 75th percentile deal a year ago is my point. And so if you're looking mm. at just like median deals and you're like, oh, they're flat. You're like, well, flat is down if, if the number of deals has been cut in half because only the really good deals are getting funded today and, you know, really promising startups. Um, and to get back to how I'm, you know, putting valuation kind of to work in practice, you know, I'd mentioned, I talked to some founders where, you know, they raised on high prices. I mean, the truth of it is those are just deals that are probably going to, um, I'm probably not going to be the one to convince them. They're, they're going to, the founders are going to need to hear that a bunch of times, right? From mm -hmm. a lot of different sources before they kind of reset their expectations. Some founders already have, but a, a better sweet spot for me right now, given how the market has reset, is trying to be a first institutional check with a founder or being more like a late pre-seed rather than a seed plus investor where you're kind of between a seed and a series A. There's already a pretty high price and precedent that's been set. Founder doesn't want to give on that tough conversations. Frankly, it's just a lot easier to, to be earlier. So mm. that's where I've been focused. Joe, I can't remember it was us that had this conversation or someone else. I so forgive me, but what's the like like with with the seaplane, why would you like why would you do seaplane over say just write your own checks and what i mean by that is is there but do you see having uh investors as a way to impact businesses more and does it open more doors because you're able to write bigger checks if that makes sense i'm kind of getting at like a lot yes. of people a lot of people like venture like, couldn't i couldn't i just do this on my own yeah that's it that's <laughs> it basically yeah no, I, and I considered that, <laughs> but I what I landed on was that I would be able to do it better with partners. So, okay, venture is kind of a funny business where there's you want enough capital to be able to get into deals and support founders, but not so much that then you're you're stuffing founders with too much capital mm. or you're inflexible and you can only do really big deals and then you find yourself overpaying so there's kind of this weird shaped curve that that does that but look i, I could just be doing personal angel investing and you know it, it would be very similar essentially the same process as what i'm doing now but the difference is by having partners, I'm able to provide a lot more capital to founders and they can run faster. It brings risk down while at it. And frankly, yeah, you get better access to deals when you're writing a check that's 10 times as big than if you're writing it personally. Mm. So it's it's that combination of things. And you know, and I just the um, I don't know, the the builder in me just has has fun with it too, and and having partners engaged and you know a lot of um a lot of folks that i've worked with over a long time are involved and it's great mm. to, to partner with them and rewarding and good to have them along for the journey for sure um uh, so i've got a couple of little questions to tuck on the end here uh just around kind of the vc landscape and some of the things that maybe are myths or not but 
just a real quick one. Why did you name it Seaplane? Uh, so when I was a kid, my parents rented Indiana Jones on VHS. Mm. And I was supposed to be in bed, but I snuck out. And I was watching Indiana Jones, like hiding behind the couch while they were watching it. And Indy, you know, steals the golden idol. Mm. He's running. He's chased by a boulder. You know, there's boulder rolling after him. Arrows flying, spears chased by the, you know, native people there. And he runs and he dives in the water and escapes by a seaplane. And, the, you know, little, little Joe watches this. And it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so flash forward, when I was thinking about firm and I thought about, you know, the kinds of companies I wanted to back. And I thought, well, you know, this, I want this firm to be small. I want it to be nimble. I want it to be fun and adventurous. What is that? And the first thing that just popped into my head was, was a seaplane. And I was like, <laughs> there, there we go. I love that. I love that. Um, okay. So just some real quick ones on the end here. We hear a lot of talk around the best startups having one or sorry, two or three founders. Is that always the case in what you've come across so far? I mean, this might evolve over time, but um, is that something that you look for specifically? No. In fact, our first investment at Seaplane has been with a business where it's a sole founder. So- okay. You know, it's it's very situational to me. I think people traditionally like a dual founder setup because there's some redundancy and, you know, two heads are more than one and you can just brute force get more things done. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes those can be complementary skills. So you might have a technical founder and then a more business-oriented founder. So I certainly get it. And we could point to plenty of businesses that had, you know, two founders plenty with three, but also plenty with one. And I think it's just really, really situational. Um, you know, one thing I'd say one versus more is sometimes one can move faster. So, I mean, it, it, to speak to myself, right? Like I'm a solo GP, I don't have partners and I'm perfectly fine with that. I've been operating that way for a long time. Um, but I think that there's something to be said for being able to move quickly. And sometimes while you might have two founders or you know three, um, which feels kind of thick to me, but if you have three founders, yes, they can do more, but sometimes I can slow you down, you know, because then you start getting into debates around like, well, who does what, who owns this decision? You can have tough conversations about, well, tough conversations, or sometimes you put off tough conversations because it's not clear who owns a conversation. If the business needs to make a really big adjustment to strategy or product change, you know, it, it may not happen as quickly as if you just had a single founder who they've got a team working with them, they've got advisors, they've got investors supporting them, but ultimately it's their call and everybody knows. Mm. Mm. Um, the next one is just another really quick one is, um, this idea of rounds and what have you, you touched on it earlier on operating where you do, and we tend to bucket things in venture capital, you know, different stages, A, B, whatever. Um, just like, that always seems a little bit unusual to me, but I don't know. Contrived. 
Yeah, it does. How, how do you think about yeah. that? I'll tell you the, I'll tell you why I think they exist and then I'll tell you how I think, how mm. I approach them. I think they exist because going out and raising money is a big distraction when you're a founder because you're trying to grow the business very quickly. You're hiring, you know, most sales are founder led, at, at least like on the enterprise side at the scale. So founders are super stretched and it would be preferable if they could go out and raise a bunch of money all at once and not have to worry about it for two or three years and then come back and do it again. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Another part of it is from the VC side, there is a view, and I'm not saying I have this view or that I feel is personally and situational. There's a view that there's safety in numbers. And if you have a VC who will typically lead the round and they might invest half the round, that's kind of the way it usually works. There are exceptions. They'll do the lead and then there'll be several other VCs or small angels who will fill out the rest of the round. And generally speaking, VCs kind of like that model because the view is, well, we've de-risked this a bit by giving the startup more runway, more capital, more potential sources of future capital. So if you're the mm -hmm. only investor in a round, well, you know, later when that founder comes back, the cap table, you might be potentially the only external investor on the cap table. So if they need more capital, you're the person they're going to come to. If they have a cap table that's a little more diverse, you know, there there is more potential support there down the track. But also not just in capital terms, but in terms of relationships and introductions and people committed to helping the business. So that's part of it. Another part from the VC side is just frankly, like due diligence and the operational side of it. It's easier when you kind of bundle a lot of this stuff together and more cost effective. But you know, a good question is like, is all that rational? And the answer isn't necessarily. So when I talk to founders, I make it a point to say, like in a first conversation, look, because I'm focused on businesses with good unit economics and that run a pretty tight ship as far as cost, they don't have massive burn rates. And because we can provide a decent bit of capital, I don't need to invest as part of a round. So if there is a round that's happening, I'm totally open to participating if it's a deal we want to do. But on the other hand, if you're just looking for what other people consider a bridge, I'm open to that. Alternatively, I'm open to being the first institutional check. And it doesn't need to be a, a round, like a priced round in a traditional sense, but being the first institutional backer and then helping them work towards bringing on you know, more solid institutions as they go forward. So that... That's been an interesting thing talking to founders because a lot of VCs have specific ownership targets that they're looking for. Um, that's kind of its own own side tangent tangent time number three. Um, <laughs> but you know, a lot of VCs will say things like, "Look, we have a we've got a ten percent ownership target. We got a twenty percent ownership target. We you know they pick a number. We've got to have that when we invest." Um, I personally and they do. For control and because they want to maximize their wins. But you know, I think as far as portfolio construction, what can be odd about that to me is sometimes you'll have a fund that'll be like, hey, listen, we've got to have 10 or 20%. But then that that investment 
will only be like 1% of their fund. And I tend to view it as, well, look, if you really have conviction, then make it a bigger percentage of your fund. It's not the percentage of ownership in the business that matters. It's the percentage of the business that makes up your fund. So I realize this may sound very straightforward to someone who's got a you know public market background, but this is it's a different mindset in venture. Um, mm. Yes, mm. I'm going to snuff out the tangent, but <laughs> no, I do appreciate that because uh, it's just something that I've always been a little bit perplexed by. I just kind of broadly get it, but um, yeah, it's just from a public markets background and from someone who's never been through the venture process of my own business. I've often thought, well, where would we sit? Why? Why would who would we approach based on this? So it just, yeah, it was always a little bit um, and uh, strange to me. But uh, I do really appreciate you you joining me, mate. I know it's a uh, it's nighttime your time. It's uh, morning my time. Uh, we get to do this a little bit, but it's really just awesome to sit down and chat and just kind of go yeah. on those tangents. And um, I, I was, yeah, I was reading something on Seaplane C- Ventures, the website, and I was just, I just, I thought this would be a really interesting thing to talk to you about. Um, although it's not in real life, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, via Zoom. It's just really good to ch- sit down and talk with you because a lot of people that have followed you, Joe, will know that you've been on the show before and we kind of had a, a pre-mortem and post-mortem and uh, all these different things, of, you know, around yeah. when you've built things, when you've started things and how you view things at the beginning versus the end. And uh, this is a really exciting chapter for you, I think. And uh, I'm so keen to watch along and see where you go from here over the next few years. And yeah, just really appreciate you taking the time to join me, taking some time out of your evening, mate, and um, sharing some of these insights with with the community. Well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate you having me. It's a super fun conversation. Um and as you said, we talk when we're we're not recording it too. So this is a lot of yeah, a lot of fun for me. And you know, Owen, you're doing you're doing great work. Uh, it's great to see the impact you're making in Australia. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having thanks for having me uh, as part of this uh, this conversation, man. I know um, you like to you know talk to your your investors and what have you and closely, but I do appreciate you bringing me into the fold a bit here. And uh, until next time, Joe, take care, mate. Absolutely. Cheers. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.